you want to turn to Psalm 110, we're going to read all seven verses. And if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Psalm 110, give ear to the word of God. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, I mentioned uh, already this is Ascension Sunday. You know, the church, not every church uh, really recognizes or follows any kind of liturgical calendar. Technically, this past Thursday was Ascension Day. Uh, Some churches still follow that and would meet on on a Thursday, just like some of our evangelical churches will meet on Good Friday. You know, they they don't always just meet on a Sunday uh, for the same kind of reason. Some churches have met this past Thursday. We don't have the ability to do that, and we really prefer to just meet on the Lord's Day and, and observe it then. So this is the observed Sunday for Ascension Day. And uh, the reason for that is in the the scripture text that Rob read to us earlier in the service. In Acts 1, verse 3, it says the Lord Jesus, quote, presented himself alive to them, that's the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, and here it is, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It was after those 40 days that he was, it tells us, lifted up to the right hand of God the Father out of their sight in the clouds. Now, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father, I say this every, every year at this time, but I think it just bears repeating. Uh, it, it's, one of the, it's easily one of the most neglected truths of the Christian faith. And it really shouldn't be. It's, it's neglected as it is, despite the multitude of references to it throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The ascension of Christ is not without a multitude of witnesses in the scriptures about it. In fact, if you and I were to make it our consistent practice to focus on every you know, particular truth of God's word relative to the frequency with which it's mentioned in the Bible, uh, we would have to conclude that you and I would all spend much more time focusing our attention on the ascension of Christ in the scriptures than we do. And it's for that reason that I have true confession here. I lost track of, of how many Sundays it was since Easter. And this past week, I was starting to prepare it on a different text when I realized this was Ascension Sunday. So shame on me. But you can see it doesn't come to mind, even even to your pastor. duh, You know, but uh, but it should it should come to mind. But, you know, the point is, if you were to look at the scripture and see how often, especially in the New Testament, but also in the old Christ's ascension is focused upon, mentioned, uh, made use of for doctrine and practice, uh, we would talk about it much more than we do. Every time, every time we call Jesus Lord, we are by implication confessing a number of things, but one of those things is the ascension and reign of Christ at God's right hand. Every time we call Jesus Lord, that's what we are implying and confessing by that, 
by implication. Mike, Michael Horton has a book, a uh, systematic theology book called The Christian Faith. And I, I read this probably every Ascension Sunday as well, but I just think it bears repeating. In that book, he says this about the Ascension. Given the place of the Ascension in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, it is surprising that it plays a relatively minor role in the faith and practice of the church. Though affirmed, it does not seem to occupy the same status as Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. I, I don't know how you could say it better than that. We all affirm it. Every time we recite the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we say he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, we say it. We affirm it. We know it's true. And, you know, as he says that uh, it doesn't seem to occupy the same status uh, as Christ's incarnation and death and, what, and whatnot in the practice and faith of the church, I think when you read the New Testament scriptures, you have to conclude that that wasn't always the case. In Paul's letters, he makes frequent use and reference to it and does so with, with great reason and with great application. So that brings us to our sermon text this morning. Uh, I think it was four years ago. Time flies when you're having fun. I think it was four years ago. If you were here, you might recall Dr. Gary Cass was here and he preached on this very text of Scripture and he called verse 1, and this was the title of the sermon, I believe, God's favorite Bible verse. That got everybody's attention when he said it. Like, Wait a minute, the whole Bible is God's favorite verse. But uh, he called it God's favorite verse of scripture or God's favorite Bible verse. Now, why did Dr. Cash say such a thing? Was he being silly or sarcastic? I don't think so. Uh, the reason he gave it that on that day was that it's because this verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, and, and some of the rest of the psalm as well, is quoted in the New Testament more than any other passage, not just in the Psalms, but in the entire Old Testament. Our sermon text, if you were to read your New Testament, there's your homework for the rest of... You have an extra day off tomorrow, right? Those of you who work, some of you. Like, read, through this, read through the New Testament and mark every time you see a reference to Psalm 110.1 or Psalm 110.4 or any place in that, in that psalm. Dr. Douglas Kelly writes the following, brief and to the point. He says, Psalm 110 is more frequently quoted in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on the Psalms goes so far as to say this. He says uh, of Psalm 110 that Christ's disciples, quote, referred to it so often that it became the Psalm most quoted in the New Testament and verse 1, the most quoted verse. By my count, Dr. Boyce's count, by my count, Psalm 110.1 is quoted directly or alluded to indirectly at least 27 times. 27 times. How many books are in the New Testament? Quiz, 27. Like, it doesn't mean every single book, but it's, that's a lot. That's a lot that it's quoted in the New Testament. If you and I were to go through all the passages in, in the New Testament that refer to Psalm 110, uh, any part of it, we could spend easily the entire sermon time, the entire I almost said sermon hour, but I thought you might panic if I said that. <laughs> the, almost the entire sermon time, just reading those passages without much comment. Might take a couple Sundays to do it, frankly. Uh, so this morning, uh, you know, we are not going to be able to do justice to the entire psalm, uh, even as short as it is. I uh, may have to touch back upon it on a, on a future Sunday. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we will at least scratch the surface of it, of this great psalm of David, and do so to our edification in the faith that's in Christ Jesus, who is our ascended King of Kings. 
So the first thing, the very first thing you see in the psalm, in the very first verse of the psalm, is that it speaks of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God. And in doing so, it speaks of Christ's ascension as his enthronement. When you think of the ascension, that is what you should think of, among other things. You know, it's not, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up uh, in a Methodist church. Uh, don't fault, fault me for that. But uh, we would recite, one of the things we did do was recite the Apostles' Creed. And I want to say it might have been every Sunday. It was often enough that I basically had it memorized. I can't say, sorry, sorry to say that I can't say I probably didn't think it through and really think about what each thing in the Creed meant. But you know, it says he ascended to the, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Um, I didn't. To me, I thought, well, he's sitting. He's sitting. I thought of it as it, he's not doing anything. He's seated. He's done with his work, and so he's just kind of waiting around to come back. That's certainly not what it is saying or implying. It's it's saying he's been enthroned as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look again at verse one, where David writes, "The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand." until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that was written about a thousand years before the time of Christ, about the ascension of Christ after his death and resurrection. This, this is a messianic psalm. There aren't that many of those that speak prophetically of Christ directly as the Messiah, but of Jesus as the Messiah, but this is one of them. Uh, our call to worship Psalm 2 is another one. Uh, but the Messianic Psalms, what do they do? They speak of and prophesy of the coming of Christ. And what does David here in Psalm 1 verse 1, or Psalm 110 verse 1, tell us about the identity of the Messiah or the Christ who was to come? Who does he say the Christ is in Psalm 110.1? Notice the first use of the word Lord. Uh, if you have the ESV, or I'm not sure what translations you're looking at, but many of them, and with good reason, capitalize all four letters of the word Lord. The translators that do that, they do that in order to give us a hint uh, that, that the name of God being used there is Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital O-R-D, that is, that is a translation into English of the Hebrew word Yahweh because there are many names and words for God and for Lord in the Old Testament. And so this is their way of telling us this is God's covenant name of Yahweh that's being used here. So you could say, Yahweh says to my Lord, the second use of the word Lord there in verse 1, uh, notice it's only the first letter that is capitalized. And in this case, uh, the Hebrew word being used uh, for Lord there is another word or name for God, and that is the word Adonai. So you could say, you could say it like this. Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. So who, who was David saying that Christ was going to be? What was David under the Holy Spirit's inspiration saying about the Messiah who was to come? It's no less than two persons of the Godhead who are in view having this conversation in verse 1 of Psalm 110. David way back in the pages of the Old Testament taught that the Christ, the Messianic son of David and the Savior of sinners would be the son of God in the flesh. God the son. That is who the Messiah uh, was to be and who, who he is. In other words, King David, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, knew and confessed that his offspring or his son would also be his Lord. That's not usually how you think of it. You know, you think of the father as being a little higher and the son as high as he gets being a little bit lesser than. Uh, the Messiah wasn't going to be just David's son. He was going to be David's Lord. And David himself knew it and was happy to confess it even in this psalm. 
You know, for a, for, a, for a human father to call his merely human son Adonai would be blasphemous. If he was not God. But God revealed to David that his offspring who was to come was to be his savior and his Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you might know, actually quotes this in the Synoptic Gospels, all three of them. He quotes this text uh, in speaking to the Pharisees and scribes in Mark chapter 12, the briefest uh, version of it. Mark 12, verses 35 to, 30, to 37, this is what it says. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say, the scribes were the, were the experts in the law, right? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And he goes on, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and he quotes Psalm 110.1. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng, the regular folks, heard him gladly. I'm guessing the scribes, not so much. They couldn't, remember that if you read that chapter and what went before it, they came to him asking him all kinds of questions trying to stump Jesus. And then it's as if Jesus turns the thing around and says, I have a question for you. And I don't see anywhere in the text, unless it's in the blank spaces between the verses, where they had anything to say. They had nothing, as the kids say. They couldn't respond back to what he said. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that the Christ wasn't going to be the, 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 the descendant of David? No, he's not denying that at all. What he's saying is, you know, Paul says in Romans 1.3 that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. What he's simply saying is that the Messiah was more than just a man and was to be more than just David's son. He was, in fact, David's Lord as well. So Psalm 110.1, in no uncertain terms, teaches the true divinity and deity of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, the Lord of glory, and the Son of God incarnate. That is, that is, according to Jesus himself in Mark chapter 12, really, if you read that text, Jesus says that Psalm 110 teaches the Trinity. Teaches the entire Trinity of the Godhead, because what does it say? David himself, Mark 12, 35, in the Holy Spirit declared that. It was by the Holy Spirit that David wrote what he wrote in Psalm 110, verse 1. And in that, in that verse, you have the Holy Spirit inspiring it, and you have the conversation of sorts between God the Father and God the Son. Well, what else did David foretell by the Holy Spirit in our text about the Christ who was to come? That he would sit not just on a throne in a palace in the earthly Jerusalem, as Rob sort of mentioned earlier in the service, but that God the Father himself would say to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ is not only a ruling king, he is also, as the psalmist tells us, a conquering king. He is seated at God's right hand, the place of all authority and power and majesty, and his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. Christ's kingdom rules over all, and his kingdom is ever-growing and ever-advancing, even if it doesn't look like it to us all the time. To our eyes, of, of not of faith, the eyes of flesh, it doesn't always seem that there's much going on with Christ's kingdom, but the eyes of faith can see it and see what Christ is doing. To, the Christ was to be enthroned at God's right hand, and that's where Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16. 
And he, though the King of kings and Lord of lords, is reigning over all things even now. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the great hope of the Christian faith in many ways, to see that. All the problems you see in the world today, all these things, these shootings we're seeing, is because people aren't calling Jesus Lord. They aren't confessing him as Lord, Jesus Christ as Lord of the glory of the Father. They aren't obeying him in all things. But one day we will see that come to pass. Even now, even if it doesn't always look like it, God the Father is making all of Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet. Picture that in your head. Don't picture Jesus, but what do you do with a footstool? You rest your feet on it. Nothing difficult, nothing difficult at all about doing it. It means your labor is done, and everybody who was against you is now propping up your feet. That is what's happening uh, all through this world by Jesus as his gospel goes forward in conquest. It's a picture of military conquest and conquering. Now, how are the enemies of Jesus Christ and his church being conquered? They are not being conquered by the sword or spear or any other earthly weapon or army. They are being conquered. What is Christ's weapon in this conquering? The word of God in the gospel. That is what many commentators believe is being taught in verse 2 of our text, where it says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The mighty scepter of Christ, uh, many of them believe, is the word of God. Much like in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1.16, it talks, remember that vision of Christ that John saw? Uh, all these things. One of the things he says is that uh, there was a sharp two-edged sword that proceeded from his mouth. And what was that two-edged sword but the word of God? Our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended at the right hand of God, conquers by his word. To the eyes of flesh, sure doesn't seem like much, does it? So many despise the word of God. Even in the church, people despise the word of God, but it's God's weapon for conquering. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I forget where I saw this, so I can't give credit to the person. I'll just say it wasn't me. But somebody else commenting on this verse uh, recently said, the Bible's the only book that when you read it, it reads you. Isn't that what it says? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think that's why some people don't want to read it. It's like a mirror, but it's more than that. It's, a, it's God looking into your heart and you knowing it in his word. God's word has a way of reading us as we read it. And so some stay away from his word when they really shouldn't do so. The word of Christ is the ultimate weapon of God's warfare. It's more potent than anything that mankind can devise. It's by the preaching and teaching of his word that sinners are brought from, from death to life and converted to Christ. And the very nations themselves are being made disciples of to the glory of God. That's why when you read the book of Acts, for example, the spread of the gospel is so often described in a very particular way and the conversion of sinners. For example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God 
continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase again, Acts 19.20. It says, so the word of the Lord, here it is again, continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord is said to increase as it spreads and prevails and even as it conquers. That's what's happening. When the word of God is being proclaimed, uh, it is conquering one way or another. Christ is even said here in verse 2 of, of our psalm. It says he, he's told to rule in the midst of his enemies from Zion. That's a picture of Christ reigning from God's right hand in the midst of his enemies. Where is Christ when he's reigning in the midst of his enemies? He's at God's right hand. He's in Zion, but he's ruling even in the midst of all of his enemies. That, that's what he's doing right now. His enemies are in some ways all over this world, and he is reigning even now among them. That's why Revelation 1.5, it's become one of my favorite verses of Scripture since we've gone through the book of Revelation a little while back. Revelation 1.5 calls Jesus the ruler of kings on earth. It doesn't say he will be. It says he is presently the ruler of kings on earth. Likewise, Revelation pictures Jesus Christ in Revelation 6.2 as a rider on a white horse, and it says this about that rider, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Jesus' ascension is not a retreat. It is not inactivity or retreat. It is Jesus getting ready to come forward on his white horse, conquering and to conquer. That is what he's doing even now. And what is that? How does he conquer? By his word, by his gospel. It might not always seem to our eyes and to our hearts like Christ is conquering and making his enemies a footstool for his feet, but he most assuredly is doing so. Hebrews 2.8 puts it this way. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, it's quoting right before that Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Christ, he, God the Father, left nothing outside his control. And here it is. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's two, two truths going on at the same time. Uh, there in Hebrews 2 and in our experience. One, Jesus is reigning over all things. There is not one square inch of this earth or anything in the universe that Jesus is not authoritatively ruling over actively. But the second thing that goes along with that is we don't yet see it. It doesn't make it not true, but we don't see it with our eyes. We can't see the culmination a consummation of Christ's reign, even though it is complete over all things in many ways, even now. We don't see presently the full consummation of his rule, but one day we will. If you're a believer in Christ, actually, even if you're not a believer in Christ, one day you will see that. But it's the hope of glory for the believer to see one day the consummation of Christ's reign. But he is ruling over all things even now. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26. We just looked at this a number of weeks ago. Question 26 says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? It's a very technical sounding word, but how does Christ carry out the office of king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, converting us, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, 
and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It doesn't say how will Christ do that. It says how does Christ do that presently. If he were, if he were not, for instance, restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies, what would this world look like even now? We see, sad to say, many things coming out of the news, these shootings and whatnot, that are reminders of sin and rebellion against Christ. Uh, what would it look like if Christ were not restraining these things even now? We shudder to even think about it, but he, he is most certainly doing just that. All three of those things taught in, verse tw- in, in, in question 26 are taught here in this great messianic psalm of Christ that Christ subdues his people to himself, that he rules and defends us, and that he restrains and conquers his and our enemies. Our Lord Jesus Christ reigns as king of kings. He builds his glorious kingdom through subduing us to himself through the preaching of the gospel, the good news of your salvation. Look at verse 3. It says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So Christ will have a people. He will have a church. And they, and I, I hope I can say we, will be wonderfully converted from sinful rebels to sanctified, sanctified saints. And what is it, what does it describe God's people, uh, believers, as doing? Offering ourselves freely to him, to serve him. Not begrudgingly, not with stiff necks, but freely and gladly serving Christ and offering ourselves up to him. Not only that, but we who believe in Christ will serve Christ our King in holy garments, it says. What does that mean? It means that the the bulk of our serving God has to do with the content of our character in Christ being holy, being sanctified more and more by God's truth and God's spirit. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus can be conquering his enemies, subduing us to himself in such a way that we can serve him freely or gladly how is it possible that he can do that that you know think about this outside of christ all of our righteous deeds what does isaiah 64 6 say about them they're filthy rags all it literally it says all of our righteousnesses the things that we depend upon that we think make us good in god's sight on our own all those things are nothing but filthy rags they can never cover for our sin they can never hope to atone for our sin Before a holy God. But look at verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that's Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I may have to do a second sermon in the future on that verse alone because the book of Hebrews spends, it seems, chapters on that subject. Christ's priesthood, basing it on this one verse uh, here in Psalm 110. Some commentators, and I think they may be onto something, believe this verse, verse 4, to be kind of the focal point and center and heart of the, of the entire psalm. And that may, to me, it, you know, it, I think of verse 1, but I think they may be, they may be right. It's not hard to see why, why they might think that, for here not only is Christ's kingship being spoken of and prophesied, but his priesthood as well. Christ Jesus is not only our king of glory, but he's also, for every believer, our great high priest, And the book of Hebrews, I think, spends more time. It spends time on both the fact that he's king and the fact that he's great high priest. But I think that it spends more time on verse 4 than verse 1. And it spends quite a bit of time on verse 1. What does a priest do? 
We throw words like that around. Even that, that verse from Acts I read earlier in the service said a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. What does a priest do, biblically speaking? A priest represents the people before God. You know, a prophet, in some sense, represents God to the people, proclaiming his word, his, his law, his gospel. A priest represents the people before God. He makes sacrifices for their sins to reconcile them to God. He intercedes or prays for his people before God. That's what a priest does. The Shorter Catechism, once again, question 25. We're kind of going backwards here a little bit, but... Question 25 of the Shorter Catechism says, How does Christ execute the office of a priest? It says, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. He prays on our behalf before the Father. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says that Jesus Christ, quote, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Old Testament priests didn't do that. They offered up animals. Jesus offered up himself as a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus, by his own death on the cross, as a sacrifice, a propitiation for our sin, reconciled his people to God through his atoning death on the cross. There's part one. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus intercedes for us as well. And after quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, just a few verses later, Hebrews 7.25 says this. Consequently, because of this, because of this, consequently, he, that's Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost means from start to finish, completely, leaving nothing out, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost everyone who draws near uh, to God through him. Why? Because he reigns at God's right hand and serves as our great high priest, and he always lives, it says, to make intercession for us. So Jesus Christ saves sinners. He saves us, saves us to the uttermost. So I asked this morning, uh, do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, not just as a Savior or even as the Savior and Lord? Is Jesus your Savior and your Lord? If he is, what, is the, what does our text tell you to do? In so many words, offer yourself freely up to him in garments of holiness. Serve the Lord in holiness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Worship him. Seek to obey all of his commandments in all things. Bear witness to Christ as Savior and Lord Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Pray as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Pray for his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you see things like we've seen in the news in the past week, pray for all kinds of things. Pray for Christ's kingdom to come. Pray for his will to be done. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he will not only gather his church, but also defend us from all, all of his enemies and ours. Christ is faithful to restrain and conquer all of his enemies and ours, as Shorter Catechism 26, 26 puts it. Verses 5 through 7, the end of our psalm, we read of the completeness of Christ's conquest over his enemies. The picture here in Psalm 110, just like it is in Psalm 2, it's a military-looking picture. 
It's a pig, and it's meant to be that way. Christ is not conquering by a military army. That's what the unbelieving Jews, when he first came, expected, and it's not what he came to do. But it's not because he didn't come to conquer. They just had the wrong idea about what kind of conquering he was going to be doing and how great it was going to be doing. His, his idea of conquering is much greater than theirs. The extent of his kingdom is much greater than theirs than they ever would have thought uh, to do. But look at verses 5 through 7. It says, The Lord is at your right hand, kind of going back to where it started. He, the Christ, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That drinking from the brook uh, is, is after his conquest. It's a picture of the, of the fight is done, and now he's refreshing himself at the water side and lifting up his head. But look at what it says about the earthly kings. He will shatter them on the day of his wrath. Every king, every ruler, every president, every prime minister, every earthly governmental figure that rebels against Christ will one day be shattered. The ones that, that do some of the worst things we see uh, in our news and whatnot and throughout history, Christ will judge them. Sometimes Christ judges them in this life. You know, it does say a lot about on the day of his wrath. The day of his wrath could be in, in the present, and it certainly will be one day of wrath on that great day when Christ returns. You know, when you read the book of Acts, I know I bring this up once in a, once in a while. Um, when you read the book of Acts, it shows us Christ defending his people, doesn't it? You have Herod, King Herod, bloodthirsty man from a bloodthirsty line of, of people. Uh, what does he do? He kills James, the brother of John, with the sword, and he grabs Peter. What's he going to do with Peter? He wants to have a bigger show. Peter's the big fish, right? He's going to kill him in front of everybody, make everybody nice and happy. And what happens? Well, God, God rescues Peter from that prison cell. It's one of the best stories in the book of Acts. Well, what happens to Herod? He's giving a speech one day. I'll let you look it up on your own. He's giving a speech one day. He's wearing his shiny robe. And people are kissing up to him and saying, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what happens? He didn't give glory to God and God struck him down. The Lord struck him and he died. He was eaten with worms and died. That's why Psalm 2, our call to worship, talks about uh, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. He's talking to the kings and rulers of the earth, the most powerful people in the world. Oh, obedience and faith to Christ. And they will one day bow the knee and confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. The wicked will not be able to stand before him, not in this life and not on the last day of judgment. Kings, rulers, heads of state, anyone who continues in rebellion against Christ and his kingdom will one day be shattered at his judgment. Even now the Lord Jesus Christ executes judgments among the nations. Many of the nations you read in the pages of scripture that have been the, the largest, most powerful in the world, that have persecuted God's people, where are they now? Many of them are on the dustbin of history. Where, where are the gods of Egypt? Gone. Where, how, Egypt still exists, but it's nothing like what it once was and never will be again. Where is Babylon? Gone. All these places, all these nations that refused obedience to Christ and persecuted his people, uh, he, he is able to and will judge in due time. Even now, Jesus Christ executes judgment among the nations, all owe obedience and faith to Christ. And one day again, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on earth and under the earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.